0: You ready to go, Dan? Yeah, perfect. Let's go. Welcome to More Than a Job podcast on Anchor FM. My name's Mike Bradford. I'm Jay Hamilton, And my name is Daniel Bull. Our thoughts and prayers are with Her Majesty the Queen and her family on the sad news that her beloved husband, His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, has passed away peacefully at Windsor Castle. The Duke of Edinburgh gave a lifetime of service to our nation and was a steadfast support to Her Majesty both before and during her reign. May our Lord bless and comfort Her Majesty the Queen and her family during this difficult time. Tonight, it's our absolute pleasure to welcome a very special guest to the More Than a Job podcast on Anchor FM. We're joined by Jonathan Gullis, MP. Jonathan was elected as the Member of Parliament for Stoke-on-Trent North, Kidsgrove and Talk in 2019. Previously, he worked as a secondary school teacher in Birmingham. Jonathan was head of year and was responsible for the achievement, behaviour and safety of over 250 students. He oversaw whole school attendance for years 7 to 11 and was also a school trade union representative for NASUWT. As a member of the Education Select Committee, Jonathan is focused on ensuring that the well-being and life chances of young people are put forward in Parliament. Jonathan, welcome to More Than a Job podcast.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. And can I just echo your comments regarding His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh? I think the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme in particular is something that sticks out to me. And even though I rather poor choicely uh, chose not to take part in it, uh, I know how important it was for the many kids I would uh, get enrolled on the course and explain it to them, particularly from kids from inner city areas who maybe never venture outside and experience the things the Duke of Edinburgh did. So it is a tragic loss for not just this nation, but around the Commonwealth. And I hope the Duke of Edinburgh and uh, award and many other things that uh, he did will live on, and ing- in fact, even get bigger than before.
0: I think it's, it's probably will wound it, Jonathan. I think I think you know it's, it's highlighted just from watching the news. You know, I didn't realize a lot of the things that Prince Philip stood for, and it was easy, and you know, maybe stereotyped in the in the media a little bit prior to his death. But since since he's died, it's certainly come out with so many good things. Really interesting as well uh, about the school he went to in Scotland, Gordonstone, and their approach to education. Jonathan, you've gone from from the classroom to Commons. Could you tell us about your journey through education and why you're so passionate about education and making a difference to the lives of young people?
1: I always feel that my journey is quite dull, really, so I'll probably focus... I will share it, um, but I'll focus more on actually why I'm passionate about education. And I suppose it comes down to, to a number of reasons. The first one is education is the biggest leveler and equaliser we have in society we can talk about leveling up all we want but education is the thing that will ultimately level up this country and if you look at places where i represent and this is sort of sad to say in Stoke-on-Trent North the Office for Students recently reported that we are 7th worst out of 535 English constituencies for kids going on to higher education. Less than 50% are getting a pass in English and maths we have one of the worst take-ups level 3 and 4 qualifications in England as well and social mobility we rank in the bottom 5th. Now I don't like to bang on and bleat on about the negatives because I think that the people of Stoke don't want to hear their area being put down but these are harsh realities that we need to face up to and ultimately no matter what I try and do I can build a nice new shiny building or put a nice new road in place but if the kids locally don't have the qualifications or the skills to be able to access what are going to be the jobs of the future in digital in particular then ultimately we're going to see a generation of left behind children and stoke-on-trent will continue sadly therefore to be forgotten as Birmingham and Manchester, who eclipse it, sadly, continue to grow, even though we are, as I always bang on about, the most connected city, the uh, A50 corridor, M6, four international airports with one hour, power engine of the Midlands uh, engine and the uh, gatekeepers to the Northern Powerhouse. So I think that there's so much potential in Stoke. But in terms of Why I'm passionate about education, if I'm quite frank, it's my dad who inspired me. So my dad went, and my mum, my mum went, uh, was on a, a council estate in London, passed her 11 plus and went to grammar school. And really that was the opportunity for her out of all her friends, to be able to have a head start in life. My dad, on the other hand, went to a school in uh, Trowbridge. Uh, It wasn't really focused on the best quality of education, as he says, I think it's politely put. And he ended up failing his O-levels. And he actually went back to that school to be a a caretaker during the day and did night school. Got his O-levels, then went on to do A-levels whilst he was studying, I believe, uh, whilst he was uh, working for the council as a receptionist and then eventually went through the Open University route so my dad went through an extremely long route but he was so passionate about education about having better chances and better opportunities in fact he went into teaching himself and to this day is a music teacher uh, in you know teaches piano to kids uh, and adults and so his passion therefore came through and was what really got me inspired and I remember it's very humble upbringing I had every head start. Look, I make no, I never hide it. I was lucky enough to go to a prep school than a private school. I had every advantage given to me, but that was because of the sacrifice of my dad and my mum in their early years to make sure that I had a head start. And what I want to do with education is to make sure that kids in places like the Stoke have the very best education, an education that is as good as a private school education without having to the fees that come with that. And ultimately that's what will always drive me because until we sort out education somewhere like Stoke, we're never really going to tackle the social inequality that exists. Jonathan,
2: it's so clear how passionate you are both about all of your constituents but about education for every child across the whole of the United Kingdom. To touch on... The union side of things, it's been used non-stop, the, the issues with the NEU, and of course, you yourself were a representative of the NASUWT, which was the union that I was a part of when I first started teaching. Now, obviously, we, we understand and we value what teaching unions bring, but can we explore what your thoughts are on the, the Mary Boosted Kevin Courtney, the NEU's approach to supporting their members, this seemingly confused stance on exclusions, the mass cancellation of memberships that we've seen over the weekend it, it linked with that as well should we remove exclusions from a head teachers' toolbox
1: i think the trade unions have a lot to answer for from this pandemic to be quite frank i think they have done in some cases maybe irreparable damage to the profession now the nasuwt is a fantastic trade union one i'm really proud to have been part of and continue i still think to pay my subs as a, as a non-associated member directly and i think they you know I, I really admire all they've done dr patrick roach is a very good man and i thoroughly enjoyed listening to him over the years i do think however they allow themselves to be led by the neu throughout this crisis which is a mistake i am i am very concerned by the nsuwt also just having passed this motion to decolonize the curriculum i find that is incredibly divisive and it's political it's bringing politics into the classroom and to tell teachers to work with the black lives matter organization i think that's important distinction to make not the movement the organization black lives matter to a group that is a marxist group that wants to defund the police that actually is more interested in separation rather than inclusivity I think is something that is very concerning and therefore will drag politics into the classroom where it doesn't belong. The NEU Balstead and Courtney, let's be quite frank, they need to resign and I've called upon them to resign with immediate effect. I've done that in letter, I've done that in speeches in Westminster Hall, I've done that on talk radio and I'm doing it now on the more than a job podcast because they are embarrassing in my opinion. They are obsessed with playing party politics. Remember Kevin Courtney famously was attending a momentum rally right before the 20th 2019 general election. I've actually had some exchanges of letters because they got very cross that revealed their salaries, which was inclusive of their national insurance and their pension contributions. And I, I must say, I do apologise, I was quoting the 2018 figures. One was earning 180000 and one was earning over 200000 but they did then go down to under 100000 each in the 2019, and they've gone back up to around about 130000 I believe it was in 2020. So I'm sure they were really happy. They did threaten that they were going to publish their letter to me, and I responded with all the figures and they seemed to have gone quiet. So you know bring it on is what i say i'm not going to be sort of bullied by these union paymasters that sort of like to try and cheat their members like puppets because at the end of the day listen let's not forget what happened here we had a pandemic, we had the Department for Education going through one of the most challenging, the most challenging period probably since World War II in terms of how do we educate children, an unprecedented time where we're telling kids to stay at home. And what are the NEU doing in May? Rather than sitting around the table with the DFE talking about bringing back transition year groups into schools or exam cohorts in secondary, they're sending out emails on the 21st of May to their members to share Facebook graphics. Now, I'm sorry, why are the NEU making Facebook graphics and hashtags? And why are they spending trade union pet members, uh, money on that. At the end of the day, that is not good use of trade union members' money. What NEU and other unions should be doing is protecting workers' rights and obviously the health and safety of their staff. And of course, there are lots of questions the government had to answer, and they didn't always give clear answers. So I have no issue with the NEU and other unions asking more probing questions. But what I do have an issue with is when they're releasing their, what was it, 120 points in order to reopen schools, and some of them were talking about ensuring the schools taught a broad curriculum. What the hell has that got to do with the global health pandemic? When the NEU are talking about reforming the welfare state. It's not the job of the NEU to get into discussions about universal credit, whether they like it or not. At the end of the day, it's their job to talk about education. So quite frankly, I think they're both an embarrassment to the profession. I think they've dragged the reputation through the of the profession through the mud. And every teacher I speak to, and every head teacher in Stoke-on-Trent North Kidsgrove, and Talk, who I've spoken to, has said that the NEU doesn't speak for them. And if they don't believe me, they're more than welcome to come around and look at those heads in their faces, and I'll stand right next to them, because I'm not going to be bullied by these two who just seem to spout off nonsense all the time on Twitter, thinking that that represents the United Kingdom. They're both embarrassing. Time for them to go.
2: safe to say, Jonathan, not not the biggest fan. I'm going to throw this over to Mike. I'm not a member of the NEU. I used to be a member of the NASUWT
0: before going into senior leadership. I, I was in the same union as you were a rep, Jonathan. I was just thinking, hearing your passion speaking about the unions, whether it might be worth us in the future if you would come back on more than a job, if we could get Mary Boosted on the same podcast... That would be, uh, be made for great debate, wouldn't it? You know, and, and we, we're we certainly trying to get some some members of the union on the podcast at the moment because we want everything to be balanced. We want the right to reply. But you've made a very good point, you know, about about whether or not unions should be getting involved in wider political issues. So
1: no, thank you, Michael. Look, at the end of the day, you know, when it comes to so the NEU, because you did ask sorry, about the fact they talked about exclusions. So where I'd agree with Dr. Bausted is that when pupils are excluded, the alternative provision for them should be good enough so that they can still have a chance to learn and develop as people. And I do think at the moment there is a real lack of a quality alternative provision. One, there's the unregulated ones, which are, I think, ghastly and they should be banned immediately. I think we should be looking at the Solihull Academy model, who I'm a huge supporter of and went to visit in their early stages, where you've got a collective group of head teachers from a local area, all putting equal amounts of money in, all having regular sit-downs and conversations. And you should definitely invite them onto your podcast because I think they're absolutely superb and you know have really delivered some tangible differences so absolutely when it comes to and also if schools off-roll kids to avoid ugly results then they should be called out and head teachers should be held to account for it so I don't think Unions are bad. I think they actually shine a light. In fact, as a trade union leader, I nearly balloted my members to go on strike over the CEO of a, a multi academy trust, and actually led to him resigning before that ballot took place. We were on the verge. So you know, I, I understand the role the unions play, and I think they have an important role to play. What I don't like is this deliberate political sort of bias at the top, with people pushing their own agenda, which is what I think Dr. Balstead and Mr. Courtney have done on this occasion. But look, when it comes to uh, to and and I think the fact that you know members are leaving. I think it's something that they need to be aware of, to be quite frank, and actually question themselves what is it they stand for. Go back to what you do best. Talk about education issues. Talk about alternative revision. I mean, where we're going to disagree probably with, where I will disagree with Dr. Balstad on the exclusions is I do believe head teachers should have the right to exclude. I do believe that no head teacher. I think I've, I believe that 99.9% of senior leaders only exclude as the absolute last resort. Are there always going to be a few bad apples in the cart? Yes, there are, but you shouldn't tarnish the entire profession with that brush. And I think at the end of day I'm, I'm i get very frustrated when we talk about oh but what's going to happen to that child when actually what about the 29 other children in the classroom have had their learning disturbed what about the teacher who's now thinking about leaving the profession in a time where there is a recruitment and retention crisis uh, in the, and that was pre the pandemic behavior is so important to creating a safe learning environment that all learners feel comfortable in as uh, safe in so I, ju- I really do believe that exclusions
3: are a necessary tool Talking of behaviour, because obviously we've talked about exclusions, do you welcome the launch of the 10 million behaviour hub initiative by Tom Bennett? Jess Phillips, who we had on last week on More Than The Job podcast, was less than supportive of this. And related to behaviour, you've been at the forefront of the uh, desecration debate. Do you think there's a breakdown in the respect of the uh, long-held institutions that we have?
1: So some fantastic questions. I suppose it won't come as a shock to you all that perhaps Jess Phillips and I might have different opinions <laughs> on certain things and on this one yes jess and i i you know we'll be in disagreement i think this is a welcome initiative tom bennett is someone that i've i've actually been at a school where he came in and gave a talk and a seminar and I, I you know i've read some of the stuff he's done and i think he is a, a very sound chap on this type of stuff but i would always be cautious with these behavior hubs because one thing we're very good at is setting up these uh these bases but god knows where they always end up you know for me they should be we should be say, setting things up as local as possible because at the end of the day if you're in Stoke-on-Trent if you've got my nearest the nearest behaving hub let's say is in Birmingham how many teachers are realistically going to have the time to be able to take off and go and spend a day or what would realistically let's be quite frank a week really to really immerse yourself and understand the different techniques try them out pros and cons of all of them it's been one of my biggest criticisms actually is CPD of is teaching staff any other profession you're able to go and visit other thing other institutions organizations outside of your building what we get trapped in is looking at our best colleagues within our school now there is always going to be some standouts but actually what's most important is to get out and see I've been to Michaela for example I love lots of the things they do but I wouldn't do everything they do I actually was brought up through a project-based learning approach by Pete Patterson you know which is let's be quite frank the staunch opposite of what Michaela's about and I think that that approach has its place and I think School 21's a real leader in that and whilst I sadly haven't had the chance to visit them I don't chastise them for having a different model I think we have to be careful to avoid a one-size-fits-all because Head teachers need to have autonomy, and obviously, different kids in different areas have to have different approaches at times. But there should be some core fundamental expectations of how students should behave and how teachers should feel empowered to enforce discipline within their classroom. I think this is a welcome step, uh, but obviously the proof will be in the pudding of actually how much outreach work is done. These hubs need to go and visit the schools where their biggest issues are. They need to come to places like Stoke and spend time. I've got some good senior leaders who I think do have a vision, but actually, you know what? They haven't got the time to go and seek this stuff. They need people to come to them and spend time with them and hear them out. So hey, I hope that will take place. And in terms of respect, I do think there's a serious concern with particularly the next generation of, you know, or the young generation coming through uh, when it comes to a lack of respect and I do think there is a level of ignorance that has sadly crept in you know in Tunstall where I represent and in fact my constituency offices I've just seen a war royal was desecrated there I felt quite angry and did sort of a ranty video I suppose because at the end of the day what got me most annoyed is that when I introduced this law it wasn't to create a law for the sake of doing a law, it was the fact I said that when I saw what happened at the Cenotaph, and it was a young man, let's not forget, I think 18 or 19 at the time, Mr. Sang, who uh, tried to set to light the union flag on the Cenotaph uh, and said he didn't know what it was. And, you know, that was a really worrying aspect for me. And the fact that we've seen a swastika spray-painted in Sandwell, the fact we've seen indecent images of genitalia spray-painted in a warm oil in Tunstall shows that there's clearly a major issue here in society. And actually, institutions do need to be protected, do have a right to be stood up for. And I suppose I was so angry because I remember being chastised. In fact, my opponents down here on uh, benches opposite were kept saying, oh, you're protecting statues. And I kept heckling but the Speaker gave me a a look that, you know, these weren't statues. I'm talking about war memorials and war graves. I have no issue if people want to remove a statue from their society I just believe that there's a process that you should go through not just going and pulling some rope around it and tearing it down I don't think that is a way a democracy should function nor how freedom works because just because you may not like it doesn't mean others are I just feel the same as you at the end of the day, we live and have to live in a society where choices are made, uh, options are laid out on the table and people vote with their feet. My great, great uncle is a Royal, uh, is a D-Day veteran who still lives today. My granddad served in Suez for the Royal Marines. So it's something very personal to me. And I think if we've seen with his Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh, there's a man who to some is the epitome of... The institution, but actually was one of the great reformers, particularly in the early years. And so I think sometimes we don't actually re- realize that change sometimes so these institutions can take time, but there are people on the inside who want to change them. And actually, what we should be doing is supporting that change. So, yes, we need to find this new, uh, we need to find respect for our institutions. We need young people to, I think, be more educated about what these things are and actually understand the emotional importance they play in the community because what they don't realize is their next door neighbor's granddad or great might have their name on that memorial and so yes to them it might not mean something but to their neighbour it does and that's ultimately what respect is is understanding your community not just having your own uh, perceived perception enforced upon other people.
0: The lads are laugh at you me now but I, I get Dan and James like to uh, wind me up because I've got a really close relationship with the British Legion at school and I do all the I organise a lot of the stuff there and they always wind me up saying you know and um, that's when I'm going to get my medals and all the rest of it but so I, you know, I, I support that. I, I did have a wider question about that, but to be fair, it's not about education.
1: No, go ahead, uh, honestly, go ahead. Well, oh, go
0: ahead. The only thing I would say about it, Je- I mean, just, just coming back to Jess Phillips, there's a cu- couple of questions that, that when she mentioned, just to come back, the first thing, if, if we talk about war memorials, she was talking about more sentencing for domestic violence against women. And I was just thinking, I, I used to teach law, do you think there's more chance of your reforms going through parliament as a combined criminal justice bill Because there seem to be lots of areas where there need to be higher sentences for for lots of different things. You might end up coming together with other parties and other politicians to, to combine it as something else.
1: So what's happened actually is that the legislation we brought forward as a private members bill has been introduced into the police crime sentencing and courts bill, uh, which has obviously got tougher sentences for killer drivers, uh, for child murderers, child abusers and uh, a host of other serious offences. So uh, it has been consumed within a wider piece of legislation that is going to see sentences increase uh, for some of the most heinous crimes that we see in our society. And whilst I understand that some people might say, is this really the issue of the day? Well, the fact I've I've given you three examples in the past twelve months, and those are the ones that I know of. Let's let, not including the ones that we haven't made, haven't made the newspapers locally or nationally. Says that there is clearly an issue in society. I think people get carried away with my whole ten years in prison. Well, that's I need to remind people that's the maximum sentence. And at the end of the day, when you're writing legislation on the criminal uh, justice, as you know, Michael, there has to be sentencing guidance. And ultimately, we were asked as part of our private members' bill, what would your sentencing guidance be? And obviously, judge. Judges would then review it. What actually is the most important part of our legislation was removing the £5,000 worth of damages threshold from the Criminal Damages Act, because that was the barrier to to people going from a magistrate's court to a Crown court. Now, I'm not saying every case. In fact, I suspect very few will ever up in a Crown court. But what um, war graves once valued at about £500, Do you, does someone really need to smash 11 headstones in, war, in a uh, war cemetery in order... For that person to end up in the Crown Court. To me, that just seems utterly bizarre. These things uh, carry an extremely important value to individuals at the end of the day. We all know that, with the, you know, we look at aggravating and mitigating factors at the end of the day. And I do think that, therefore, judges should be able to use their discretion to determine how serious the damage is. And that's all this bill was about. It was about removing some archaic £5,000 threshold to allow judges, legal experts, to use their discretion, not politicians. Judges, And I think that's why this piece of legislation was so important. But sadly, I feel that the media and opposition politicians jumped on the whole 10 years maximum sentence without actually allowing people like me the, the honour to explain what we were trying to achieve.
2: Jonathan what's really sort of got on my nerves over this this whole issue is that 12 months ago the whole country was apoplectic over the the, the way that extinction rebellion were conducting themselves super gluing their hands to roads desecrating war memorials burning down flags and i feel that the arguments have been deliberately blurred by some to bring in rape and domestic abuse and assaults against women and women and girls, which of course we need the strongest, toughest sentences possible for, but it feels like they've been mixed in with the desecration. So it's almost a comparison. Like you can have one and not the other. That's how I've perceived it. I, I just don't understand why society 12 months ago it's gone apoplectic over one thing. And now they're saying, oh, we don't care about that now. We want to we want to kick off on something else.
1: Daniel, I think you've hit the, the nail on the head here at the end of the day. This is what frustrates me the most is, and I think the problem is that people get obsessed with Twitter. And I came off Twitter because I was, I realised it was a cesspit of the left, if I'm allowed to say that on your show. And I had to escape it immediately. And since I've done that, uh, my mental health has drastically improved. I keep saying the silent majority. You know, I walked into my seat, the first ever Conservative elected with a 6,000 plus majority. That's last larger than any majority my predecessor ever had, aside the one she actually inherited before she stood for election for herself. I think the side majority want these type of laws put in place, but I do feel that they just feel, what's the point of getting involved in debate online? You are right. Extinction Rebellion have a right to protest. What they don't have a right to do is stop People going to work, stopping the economy from effectively going forward, ruining and disrupting people's lives, damaging public property. That is not protest at the end of the day, in my opinion. That is is the unruly mob. And, you know, the best epitome of that is the student university tuition fees protest. I remember when Nick Clegg came to Oxford Brookes where I was studying and looked us all in the eyes and told us that we were going to get free uni fees. And I understand that therefore a lot of students felt angry when the fees went up, but that didn't give them the right to go and smash windows, throw fire hydrants off the roof and endangering other people's lives. And that's ultimately what happened at the end. These actions will give the opportunity for the minorities, the the people on the extreme ends of the left and the right to jump on board and therefore turn it into mob rule. And that's the issue with this. We don't want mob rule. Your right to protest is never going to be taken away. I would happily protest against that. And what I have an issue with is people being allowed, like you say, to stop people going about their everyday lives unnecessarily you know blocking ambulances from being able to get through to hospitals when they're being blue lighted as you say stopping tube trains taking people to work or children to school that's just not appropriate there's other ways to demonstrate your feelings without having to disrupt the lives of men and women and young people across this country young people then see that and see that as now political activism and that's what i'm really scared about at the end of the day because if we look at some of the scenes we've seen about this kill the bill as it's been hashtagged and that is very poor choice of language at the end of the day and very concerning for for me Uh, we've seen police vans burnt out young people throwing bottles police officers injured for 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 what what point has that made i think bristol perfectly epitomized why this legislation was needed at the end of the day so and i agree with you that you know sakir starmer captain hindsight ended up doing a, a a twitter a tweet i saw where he said Five years for rape, 10 years for damaging a statue. And it was, you know, for someone who co- says that he's forensic and someone who was a former, you know, lawyer, a very senior uh, QC, but as a very senior lawyer in this country, to get to conflate those two things is, like you say, not appropriate. They are very different things. And I couldn't agree with you more. I want to see much tougher sentences for violent crimes, particularly against men and women. I want to see, you know, and children. I want to see sentences go up. I think the government know what I'm like. I'm Mr. Bang them up and throw away the key. I've got no issue with prisons made to... Go a bit old school, you know. I don't like seeing TVs. I don't like this idea of en suites. Uh, you know, I've got them all for education in prisons, but I'm not for much else in terms apart from hard labour, uh, perhaps in some cases for those, you know, serious offenders. So I do think that the two were brought together unnecessarily and therefore have undermined what we're trying to do overall. Don't forget, this is the first government in history to bring forward that domestic abuse bill, which is absolutely groundbreaking piece of legislation. And I'm really, you know, that's the record I'm proud of when it comes to defending women in particular.
2: Sir Keir Starmer, don't forget, was head of the CPS. What he had his knighthood for.
3: What you're clearly saying is, is there's a lack of education on core British values. Now, you're a teacher, we're all teachers. Where does this education need to come from then? Because it can't just come from the schools. You can't keep battering on the schools. Yes. We, we talked about this very early on in one of our very early podcasts, this whole teacher bashing. As soon as something goes wrong in society, it's <laughs> teachers' fault that they haven't yes. quite taught that well enough. But it can't just come from politicians as well. So where does this education need to come from?
1: So I suppose the only thing I would point to in education, I'm extremely biased here because I'm a former citizenship teacher, is citizenship should be a, a much more prevalent in within the curriculum of many schools. You know, if you look at what I did at Blackfen School for Girls with Pete and Lola Blatch, who's now the head of faculty there, and I, I implore you to get her on your show. She and I disagree an awful lot politically, so she would give you an extremely interesting different perspective to me. I think what we need to do is actually parents and carers have a responsibility, and we actually need to change that narrative it's like behavior oh well schools you know these behavior hubs this is the danger isn't it schools with behavior hubs are going to solve behavior and well no a child spends more time at home than they do in a school building so the expectation needs to be on parents so our behavior hubs going to be accessible for parents to be able to understand how to better work with their children, to set tight, tougher boundaries with them in some cases. Actually not see the school as the enemy, but see the school as the friend. You know, I also think that we need to, when it comes to core British values, I think that this idea of the council culture that has sadly crept into universities. Going to university is a right to listen to all kinds of views, particularly ones you don't agree with. And actually, that's more important. I grew up with a head of politics in my school who is a who is the leader of Tamworth Labour Group on the council. He is a self-confessed Marxist socialist. You know, he and I don't agree on anything, but he is my role model because he always taught me, learn your opponent's arguments before you learn your own. My stepfather is Labour. My dad is Liberal Democrat. My mum is conservative my partner's aunt is president of the PCS union for 20 years uh, partner and uh, my partner's uncle is a SNP Marxist you know and uh, you know this, this is what he would call himself by the way I'm not I'm not being rude that's generally what he would call himself I couldn't come from a m- more diverse set of groups and uh, uh, values and ideas but what I have always done is learn to respect the other person's position and actually listen to it and educate myself on it and perhaps sometimes even be proven wrong I'm always happy to be moved I just want to be taught why I'm wrong and I think until universities really grasped this. And we start to realise that, you know, like Manchester University banning certain words for electricity use. I mean, my God, you know, there's more important things to do in this world. You know, Jacob Rees-Mogg being counselled from attending universities or well, universities having to pay for security so we could come on campus. A guy who's democratically elected leader of the House of Commons is told that he isn't welcome on a university campus because he's a conservative. I mean, what the hell has gone on at university in this day and age? Anti-Semitism on the increase at university. Universities not wanting to have to accept the IHRA, but actually being forced to do so because Gavin Williamson thankfully stepped in and said, you either do it or we're going to tell you to do it and there'll be consequences if we do. This is a very concerning time for higher education and universities need to be worried because if they wonder why students are going to start not going to university, it's because of this wokery that has uh, been allowed to come in. And when I say wokery, I'm talking about the council culture. I'm talking about people being told that their view is right and everyone else is just uneducated, needs to be re-educated That's communism to me. And I think that sadly, you know, if you look at the PGCE, I feel that that's going to be infiltrated. I feel there's an awful lot of uh, mindset there. In fact, I met some of the current students going through the IOE programme. And let's just say it was heated, I think is a polite way of putting it where I have a very different opinion to those students sitting that current training program, because they were saying to me, what do I think about pronouns and stuff like that? It's not a teacher's place to get into those debates, even in citizenship. I said, I'm pleased that we're doing an investigation on the Education Select Committee into white working class disadvantaged kids and why they are lagging behind other ethnic groups in the United Kingdom. And I was being told that this was sort of, you know, what about white privilege? And I always said, well, that's critical race theory has no place, in my opinion, in the classroom whatsoever. And, you know, the look of shock and horror, how dare I, you know, being branded a racist, basically, by some of these people, which is absolutely absurd. All that does is create more division in our society. It doesn't bring people together and the kids are extremely impressionable and therefore we have to be so careful with what we do. I'm always happy to give the kid the counter argument. Yes, kids did ask me my views at times. I shared them, but I also made sure I gave them the opposite viewpoint as well and told them to research why I was wrong. And made them do that for homework on occasion. Tell me what I've left out. Why have I left it out? Why would I do that? So teach them about what spin is about and stuff like that in the media. You know, that's how you educate children so they can see through the arguments. They can learn around the arguments. They can actually then probe when the politician gives the dodge answer, where they can probe into it much more. Of course, citizenship should be, I think, uh, uh, mandatory on the curriculum, given at least one hour a week.
2: We intend to be a politically neutral podcast. So as we've said, Dr. Mary Boosted or anybody else who feels they want to come and challenge Jonathan and his views, you know, please do, we'll, we'll provide a platform for that reasons debate and, and, as Mike said, the right to reply. But on this, on this topic, Jonathan, there's a very influential person on Twitter who's got about 80,000 followers. He tried to cancel me. Because we had Robert Halfon on episode four, oh. and and obviously Robert Halfon, he serves as your chair of the Education Select Committee. I was receiving multiple messages from this influential education person on Twitter because we dare to have a Tory on the show. To throw this back to you, and say if there are Labour MPs, Jonathan, who you who you see later on tonight, please say to them, come on the show, come back on with you, and we will love love to have a debate. But you
1: know what, Daniel? Very quickly, I think that is so important. You know, Rob Halfon couldn't be any couldn't work any harder to try and be as neutral as he can within a select committee and make sure that everyone feels their voices are heard. And I think that that example is truly shocking. You know, Rob is very fair, and you know. I I implore, if you're listening, Ian Mearns, a a very nice chap, someone I really enjoy, and actually he's been on the Select Committee now for a long time. Fleur Anderson won the new Labour intake for Putney. I think she's an absolute star, and I would thoroughly enjoy listening to her, particularly on early years, because that's her background and her experience. And, you know, I think she'd be invaluable to to have on the committee. Then we'll do a follow-up show where I'll come on and we can debate these big issues, like you say that, you know, I say this, these are my views. I'm very happy for people to tell me I'm wrong and I implore them to come and engage with you so that they can tell me why I am wrong and I will listen. And let's see if I, perhaps I'll come on and apologise for being wrong if I, if they convince me enough.
0: My, my next question, probably know the answer,
1: just, just I mean, having <laughs>
0: your, your personality over the last 25 minutes, Jonathan, but do you think we should ban mobile phones in schools?
1: Yes. <laughs> I think we should. As a head of year, I dealt with online bullying more than anything else. And what really grinded me was when parents would come in and say, so-and-so sent a message last night and I was like okay what are you going to do about it well nothing because it's out of school hours have you reported to the police have you reported the account you know in some cases your child is actually too young to have a social media account to be quite frank I think it's ghastly that you can have a social media account of 13 I think you should be 16 I think you should have to verify who you are I appreciate there's then data around that and, and identity theft potentially on there so I don't know how we could do that verification without Facebook or someone storing your data I wouldn't want them storing it I think it's far too young 13 kids going on there it brings so many issues into school it is a distraction the amount of issues and you will have all experienced this as teachers when kids are coming off the playground at the end of break or the end of lunch and if you're in the pastoral care side of things oh my god you know it's about to be a hectic hour where you've got multiple issues and what's even worse is that when there is bullying taking place kids are recording these kids being victimized being bullied and it's absolutely disgusting and some of the footage makes me cry and so look I think what Michaela do is a very smart thing you come in at the start of the day you hand in your phone to your form tutor in a box that box is locked away safely and at the end of the day you go back to your form room and it's handed out by the teacher I think kids should be allowed to take the phones to and from school you know at the end of the day it's a safety thing but also So, you know, kids in the modern world sometimes need to access their parents where needs be. But during the hours of the school day, no, those phones should be locked away and not seen until the end of the end of the day.
2: Jonathan, you recently spoke in the House of Commons and you said, if we are really going to sort out education, we need a standardised national written test in every school for all year groups from reception to year 11 so that everyone does the same. At primary, it would be literacy and numeracy and a secondary, it would be English, maths and science, so that we would have some actual data on the full impact of loss of learning. Can you give us some more details as to your thoughts and ideas on this topic and what you meant by that? My major
1: concern with what's happened this pandemic is how we're going to accurately gauge how much learning has been lost Part of me thinks there's lots. Part of me thinks actually schools have done a tremendous job and actually a lot of kids are more resilient and will bounce back much quicker than what we think. So what I would like to have seen happen is in this spring term, maybe even early summer term, all students uh, across from year reception to year 11 sit this standardized test which would then be marked and you can hire examiners to mark them uh, and ultimately then we every school then have data on their children as to where they were before the pandemic and where they currently are now in those core subjects which also have core skills that are used in all subjects wider that then means that we can actually have an accurate picture of what the loss of learning looks like and make sure that, that we give the targeted support to those kids who need it now i appreciate that some people would say that's a lot of admin for teachers for markers that comes with cost etc but I think it's the only way data in schools is so important and it's the only way we're ever going to accurately understand what happens because I, look, I am a huge skeptic for example of the national tutoring program and I feel that recent reports from the NAO have, have proven why I'm a skeptic of it we're talking about what 650 odd million pounds for getting kids in the most disadvantaged areas in particular free school meal children getting one-to-one tuition which they absolutely deserve to have particularly after this pandemic. But yet so far only 125,000 out of 1.5 million children who are free school meals have access to that, and actually, only eighteen thousand of those kids are actually free school meals eligible, and that's not a failing of the school. That is what I would call sharp-elbowed middle-middle class parents getting their kids the the support they want them to have. I don't blame parents for that. I would do the same thing for my daughter. But I do believe that actually, at the end of the day, what should be happening with this type of tutoring program is schools should have been given more autonomy to decide how they're going to invest money. Yes, there are some schools who wouldn't have used it properly. I think you could have had a system where there's a menu and schools select from the menu, so that way they. Can't just go and spend on gimmicks Uh, and I think I don't think school leaders would have been against that but I do believe therefore that money would have been much more it would have been tracked Ofsted could then have used that as a part of performance so they could have actually then measured the school's uh, progress based on the interventions the schools decided to invest in and actually then judge head teachers on whether or not they made the right decisions when it came to investing that money. I suppose I've built upon this over recent times where I've been thinking with, well, it's too late for it now, sadly, I believe. Uh, I think the government have heard my idea, but won't go with it. But what I am actually in the progress of doing is putting together some research to say that we should have a key stage three should be standardised. And I think key stage three should be year seven, eight and nine. I think it should be a broad range of subjects. And I think kids should do an exam in it. So you officially get a level one exam at the end of year nine in order to ensure that no child ever leaves school without some qualification. And then you go into your GCSEs because as ahead of year, you know I was talking to kids about their options they're far too young and far and they don't understand the different options I don't understand the different options I don't work in business I don't work in finance I don't understand plumbing or electrical work I've never done that what I call a proper job in my day's life I was a a politician now for god's sake you know year nine what we then need to do is bring chambers of commerce or local enterprise partnerships or leps as we know them should be then be running in my opinion careers advice and actually bringing business people into the world because that's the one thing that the schools are never really bridging that gap with with the business world and secondary schools in terms of having people come and explain, sell, show young people what the different types of work are out there. You know, also breaking down stigmas. I remember telling kids about going to be a manager in Aldi uh, as a graduate and being laughed at. And actually, when I was saying to kids, you get a 40 grand a year starting salary, an Aldi A3 for your car, private uh, healthcare insurance for you and your partner and 28 days paid holiday. I was like, I made a bloody mistake when I left school, should have gone straight into Aldi. Uh, you know, and, and done that careers program personally. So, you know, McDonald's again, you know, very worthy profession, you know, and we need to break down the stigma in some of these jobs. You know, being a plumber, electrician, these are jobs that are actually we have a severe shortage of skills in this country. Yet kids think that they're not actually that important in some cases because we're so focused on university always being the answer to solve all our problems. Well, I think that's part of the problem is this obsession with the university, which is why the FE White Reform, uh, the FE Reform White Paper, I think, is a huge step in the right direction. I think one of the things we desperately need to do is move away from the PGC model. I personally think that. I I do think in secondary, you need to have a specialism. I I think it would be preferable in primary as well. I think you should still go into a degree. Then you should be able to do a degree apprenticeship, which is effectively what I would call a master's. But then you're actually working and learning and earning on the job. And that is a big way. I also think there should be bonus incentive schemes. We know the biggest talent pool for educations in London is young, it's dynamic, it's forward thinking. And normally what happens in London transfers across the country, five to 10 years afterwards. If you could have some scheme where you had the best teachers going to other schools in the country where they were given, let's say, a £1,000 bonus tax-free after three years, if they can provide evidence that they made a sustainable difference to the school they work for, I bet lots of teachers would be willing to move to places like Stoke, North uh, Durham, you know, and other places like that, uh, Stockport or whatever it may be, Bolsover, in order to really push education in those areas. And I think that's ultimately what we need to do, incentivise teaching. And uh, And I hope, I hope that we'll start to think outside the box. And I do agree with you, you no, know, I'm sure James, you do fantastic work with careers. What we need to do, like I say, is work with those chambers of commerce, work with the LEPs, get them into schools, get them showing kids what they can do, get kids out on work experience actually I think we need to legally protect work experience somehow and actually make it a proper application thing that you go through you actually interview for etc not I'm going to go and get a mate with my a job with my mate's dad for for a week and have a good one and I think private schools can play a huge part in this as well and at the end of the day work because they've got a lot of contacts and helping local state schools that are surround them to access some of those individuals that could provide them those opportunities to the young people that they serve.
2: Jonathan, when I did my work experience back in 2003, I think it was, I did two weeks for the Caldwell Group. Obviously, John Caldwell's done a tremendous uh, tremendous job out there and he continues to be very um, philanthropic now, doesn't he? And, and he does an, an awful lot. And when I worked for Aberdashers Abraham Derby Academy in Telford, we were part of the business in the community scheme and we were very, very fortunate to be paired up with Capgemini. And as a result, our principal, Lee Hadley, changed the, the school's sort of motto and and plan for the students to be calm, confident, and caring, which will make them impressive and employable people.
1: That's brilliant, right? That's exactly what you want
3: yeah. to hear. If you don't mind me saying, it was quite a funny moment, but perhaps not for yourself, but for those people watching. When you got a slight dressing down for your um, (laughs) lack of dress, shall I say, in a virtual debate um, that you had. So, um, (laughs) So what are your funniest moments? Not as that, but what are your funniest moments as a teacher or the most petty thing that you've ever had to sanction a student for in your career?
1: madam deputy speaker was absolutely right to chastise me over my my lack of jacket uh and i uh and i, I you know i, I deserve the ticking off at the end of the day in fact i had a few emails from students going you have given me detention so i hope you get the full punishment that you deserve they left their names off and they uh <laughs> but they, they were very angry uh my staff have kept them i think they've printed them actually and they put up on the on the notice board or or the dart board which my staff use which has my face on it my mum was so frustrated with me she was like for goodness sake of all the things i've w- wanted you to be proud of wasn't because you didn't wear a jumper for goodness sake Jonathan you know my it was I I brought the family name into disrepute you know a lesson learned there with Jumpergate but in terms of the pettiest thing I've told a kid off for I've got to be honest with you I I prided myself, and I know I get attacked by the Twitter Twitterati for this, but I prided myself on being a Boris Johnson, so a bit eccentric, but also Jacob Rees-Mogg as this sort of like, you know, slightly aloof, out-of-touch character. And I played this character all in, in school all the time. And because I kept it up, the kids thought it was actually me. I'd come in, and when they came into the room, uh, they had to greet me. Uh, and they had to say, good morning, good afternoon, sir. And they had to sound positive, no negative Nellies allowed in the room. And so I suppose... Uh, sending a kid to isolation because they didn't come in and sound jolly as they were coming into my classroom, or if I said slants, they didn't quite sit up, listen, and no talking quick enough. Uh, at the end of the day, so I, I prided myself on being a right stickler for all the for all the rules and expectations. And yeah, a grumpy goddess is what I became known as because I refused to smile. Uh, at the end of the day, a handshake I think was a worthy reward for a naughty child who behaved well for a period of time. Not a not a gimmicky gift that you know some teachers like to give. So yeah, I think I remember colleagues saying that when. They said, "I'm going to get Mr. Gullis." This kid was suddenly go, "Oh, fine, fine, fine," because they just didn't want to have to deal with with me. So yeah, I suspect it was not being cheery enough. But I have had some sometimes where some kids have come back at me, you know, when I'm being a bit sort of sharp witted with them and they've come back at me and I can't remember one of the examples off the top of my head, but all I can say is that the child made me laugh so much because they were so quick and it was so good that whilst they should have had its detention I let them off with it. Cause I thought I'm not going to punish someone's humour at the end of the day. If I've, if I've stuck it on this kid with a bit of a uh, bit of jip and they've beaten me, they deserve to be praised. In fact, I used to give them merits I think or, or rewards for it uh, because I thought, well done to you for being, for being on the ball.
2: Jonathan, I'm going to say this one, and I'm going to keep this in the podcast. This is James' uh, – this, this James was absolutely done up by a year seven kids. James absolutely lost his rag with this boy, and he was shouting at this boy, saying, um, I am absolutely fed up with you. Your attitude stinks. The boy, deadpan, quick as you like, stared James right in the eye and just said to him, and so does your breath.
1: <laughs> well done you know what i mean kids like that needs to be rewarded brilliant it's absolutely oh, yeah. brilliant was, they, uh, well done dedicated. to
2: them jonathan these are just
0: these are just quick fire questions so you can't you, you can't sort of qualify them with an answer you just got to give the answer that's fine but i'll start you off ketchup tomato ketchup fridge or cupboard
1: oh it's fridge absolutely fridge
0: tea or coffee tea and
3: what would be your top artist on spotify sceptre Okay, so pub's open today. What are you ordering? Plum Porter, Titanic Brewery. We did teaching Room 101 a few podcasts ago. What would you consign to oblivion from teaching? The treasure hunts around a classroom. Worst thing I ever did. Oh, my God. What two items would you take with you if you were shipwrecked on a desert island where all your food and water were taken care of? So it's the items you could not use to aid you in survival question my word what would i take with me
1: i'm incredibly dull oh my word um i would take uh, uh my a picture of her majesty the queen which i have in my office uh, so i can always uh and and i would take it would have to be some uh, mature cheddar that I could treat myself to every now and again because it's my guilty snack. Some really posh stuff, you know what I mean? Like proper farm shop type stuff. I know that, you know, it might be taking care but if I was on one item that isn't food or water related, it would actually be, uh, I'm a massive Harry Potter nerd. So I would take the Harry Potter collection and sit there and read it over and over again and pretend I was I was in Hogwarts
2: probably just to keep my sanity. Jonathan, if you had a time machine, what event in history would you like to go back and witness?
1: I've had this conversation so you know when you have these conversations loads you change your answer every time because I love history so I'm a proper nerd is it would have to be Churchill coming in as prime minister during the war that first day to actually see him come in and the decisions he starts to make right from the start and actually seeing the the mood of the room reacting to him because as we know he wasn't he wasn't popular he <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't necessarily wanted but he was needed uh, at that time
2: What's the greatest piece of advice that you've ever
1: been given? It goes back to Dr. People always know your opponent's argument before you know your own.
2: Yeah. Strong, strong. That is final question. What next for Jonathan Gullis? Currently MP <laughs> for Stuckham Trent North kids, Grove and talk currently a member of the education select committee. What next? Well, get
1: re-elected <laughs> to be quite honest with you on the first ever Tory I've got to, got, to, got to try and stay in the game um, I've got a young daughter now so I need to also make sure I've got a salary coming into I've got two puppies for some reason and a baby and all in a year I don't know what my partner and I were thinking but look in all, so that like genuinely getting re-elected is the key thing but in terms of the political career ladder I'd love to take over from Nick Gibb who has just been like, I don't, think, I don't think he's ever allowed to leave. The joke is that he'll finally resign in 25 years from now. Uh, he'll be Minister for School Standards for like probably the longest ever. But if I could be Nick's uh, protégé, it would be an honour uh, to take over from him.
0: Jonathan Gullis, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. The depth of your arguments and the enthusiasm you've shown. You, you've travelled back down to London today, our listeners might not know that. And you're actually sitting in the, uh, the House of Commons library, which looks a bit like Hogwarts, actually. But thank you for giving up so much time on an evening when you're probably tired, you've been travelling, you're back in Parliament. It's been an absolute pleasure. Please come on the show again. We'll get the NEU on to uh, to be on the same uh, the same show. <laughs> which will be, or, or Jess Phillips, maybe, What one or the other. It'll be a, a fiery show. But thank you for giving your honest opinions. It's been an absolute pleasure. Jonathan Gullis, thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.